This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Simulation versus Emulation. Dark Fish. The Queen in Yellow. And Chupas. Hey, Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait. Didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter until October. 7th. Search for Plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And once more in the gaming hut, we've got a lot of axes out on the table, but not battle axes. Not two-headed axes. Not not, axes to grind. Not axes to grind, uh, but axes, as in the plural of axis. And our latest axis of games design is simulation versus emulation. And Robin, this is one that you have added to my tossed-off list, unless I miss my guess. Yes, exactly. So we've we've hit a turning point in this whatever part series, at which we are at part whatever, where uh, I'm now going to throw in the things that I actually think about while I uh, work on a game design. So the ones that we've covered so far struck me as ones where a designer will typically sort of be at a particular point on one of those uh, sliders and mostly kind of stay there, that that is sort of the area that they live and work in. And so I thought it would be useful now to look at things that I actually try to test as trade-offs often, although this one is less about trade-off and more of a I have to keep reminding myself which side of the spectrum that I wish to be on. So let's start with the definition. So a game that is on the simulation end of the spectrum is interested in rules mechanisms that conjure up results that either attempt to replicate how things would happen in reality, although that's a big asterisky point, but they think of themselves as doing that or emulation in which you are trying to get results, resolution attempts that match what would happen in a a fictional environment. And my prime example of this is Feng Shui tried to be an emulative game and and was sort of the first ones to to overtly do this, although uh, it was not the first one, certainly. The one that I think of as the key early emulative game is uh, James Bond 007 by Chris Klug from Mm -hmm. Victory Games. Uh, in which uh, we stop thinking, well, how would this really work if you all went down into a dungeon and had these lanterns and this 10-foot pole to, well, 
how does it work in Bond movies or how does it work in Hong Kong action movies or investigative mysteries or, or whatever it is. And so that's a very different way of, of thinking because people who create fiction are interested in verisimilitude, but they're not running a physics engine. They're not just figuring out what would happen in reality and describing it to you. So in first edition Feng Shui, there are areas where I thought of things as being emulative, but were really still simulative. And the great example of that is how bulletproof vests work. And so in first edition Feng Shui, a bulletproof vest protects you from bullets by uh, reducing the amount of damage they do, basically. But in the new edition, in Feng Shui 2, they're a one-shot resurrection spell, because, of course, that's exactly how they work in action movies, where someone gets shot, you think they're dead, and then they get up and they reveal, they rip open the shirt to reveal the slugs lodged in the bulletproof vest. And so those are quite different outcomes, and one is like how do bulletproof vests actually work, and the other one is how do they work in narrative. Now, I would suggest that this gets tricky because often sort of on a case-by-case basis within rule sets, there are some things that attempt to be uh, more simulative than others, and that is partly because it's easy to fall into the trap of going, well, how does this work in real life, and how do I create a, a rule that comes up to that, even when that is not your intention. Of course, it's not a trap at all if that is your intention. Right. And so, you know, when you're looking at whatever it is, you know, how does a pumping a shotgun work? How does uh, running upstairs work? Uh, you have to keep, I think, as a designer, asking yourself, what am I really trying to make happen here? And, and what, not what reality am I trying to create, but what sort of reality do I want the players to think they're in. And the notion of a hybrid is obviously, you know, it, it goes back to Dungeons and Dragons because Dungeons and Dragons could not have been particularly simulative of magic because, sorry kids, magic isn't real and real magic doesn't work the way Dungeons and Dragons magic does. So they were already attempting to emulate a sort of a mishmash of uh, Jack Vance and Poole Anderson and Fritz Leiber for the magic system and then bolted on to a relatively simulationist, you know, uh, fantasy miniatures game. And so you can have bits of your game that are more emulative, either because they're the part that is made up or because they're the part that uh, the game is really about. And then the simulationist is just what you fall back to, because even in the most, you know, loosey goosey game, you know, your your character is just defined by one stat or something. You ask the GM, can I climb that fence? The GM is not thinking, do people climb fences in crime movies? The GM is thinking, I don't know, fences. Yeah, sure. Roll. And so the the habits, I think, of most players at the table default to simulationism, even in a game, you know, unless the game is specifically covering the area that they're being emulationist of, a la the Star Wars role-playing game, for example. Right, because it's more of a question for the GM to go... Well, sort of under the hood, it would be much more interesting for you to be able to climb the fence. So it was going to be easy, and I will explain why it is easy. So that's sort of emulative thinking thinks from result to explanation, whereas simulative play goes, well, this fence is 10 feet tall. It's a chain link fence, and uh, it's been raining. It's kind of slippery. So the difficulty number uh, has to be eight. And here's the chart 
of fence climbing difficulty numbers. And here's how you add all the modifiers together. And here's where you go over the fence or not. So I think that's a, another great example of something that can feel simulative to the players either way, because you don't know how the GM came up with the difficulty number. But on a rules level, on a game design level, the one has said, well, climbing fences is more interesting in this case. Or, you know, on the other hand, it's more interesting if you get caught. So, oh, guess what? It's a 10-foot fence and it's been raining and uh, mm -hmm. there's uh, little jagged bits that are uh, sticking out. And so you are kind of cranking the possibilities in a way that there's still a chance that you will get over the fence or not because the narrative has to remain, you know, indeterminate until the uh, characters come in contact with it. And sometimes you will have to remind players with a particularly simulative mindset that they're operating in an emulative world. So, you know, if you have a player who goes, well, clearly uh, they're going to have really high security at this installation and uh, they probably have about 20, 30 guards and they have cameras everywhere. Well, we can't possibly break in. And then you said, well, you are highly skilled spies and this is like a spy movie. This isn't like reality. This is you know, James Bond and James, James Bond's pals. And so there are times when you do need to sort of remind the players even that the game is more emulative than simulative. But those times are, I think, fairly rare. And most of the time, this is something that is highly visible to the designer, uh, somewhat visible to the GM, and hopefully something that the player is not thinking about a lot, because then that can sort of cross the line into metagaming, because you don't want the player thinking, well, it'd be more dramatically interesting for me to climb this fence, so I guess I'm going to succeed in climbing it. Unless, of course, it is a game that goes even further toward emulation in which the role of the players as shared authors is more evident and they have more control over outcomes, whether they're spending, you know, hero points, which used to be shockingly controversial and mm -hmm. are now old school, or are saying, well, I'm going to spend my narrative token to have this happen or, or what have you. So there's, I think, different le levels of overlay onto it, but the opposition, the trade-offs between what would happen in a world where this was real versus what is interesting are the questions that drive the difference between simulation and emulation. And now since you've got two of the old big three of internet gaming theory, simulation and narrative, because that's what emulation is emulating, where do you put mechanics that exist to make the game tactically interesting? the gamest point of the triangle. Do you consider those to be uh, skewed to this? Do you consider them to be generally more simulationist because more dials and switches is generally more simulative? Or what is your theory on, oh, well, I have to decide if I'm making a trade-off between driving this uh, car very fast at the bad guy or whether, you know, should I dive out or not? You know, you know, thinking about your, your hit points and playing, playing the odds in that way, as opposed to just straight up, you know, well, obviously the car will scatter them like nine pins or let's roll for the, you know, degree of, uh, water on the, on the street. Well, one of the things I'm enjoying about this exercise is that it is much more complicated <laughs> than, mm -hmm. than the threefold model. Yeah. And that uh, three things cannot be in opposition to one another, really. Uh, which is uh, one of the flaws of that model, also is very prescriptive. And I think if you're talking about game design, like any applied art, there are a bunch of things that you consider as a creator and you're weighing them against each other. And uh, so spoiler alert, that will fall into an upcoming 
episode when we look at ease versus mastery Ooh. Uh, is where I would put it on, on exciting. So I would, I would decouple those things as we've decoupled many different things that somewhat overlap because it's a, a different question, right? And certainly there are tactically complicated story uh, oriented games, burning wheel, of course, being the, the king of that. And it's not a, an overlap that you think of existing until you look across the conventions floor and see Luke. And then you go, Oh, right. I remember oh, right. yeah. <laughs> that uh, totally yeah. exists. That's a thing. Or uh, riddle of steel, which is another uh, very uh, gaming uh, technical, but also emulates uh sword play as king of everything. Right. And I guess one final thing that I should say is that it is possible, although rare to simulate something that is not reality. So if you were to have a, a magic system that was based on a sort of core set of principles, right? Where magic basically worked like a science that doesn't exist and you mm-hmm. worked it all out and made sure, and then uh, said, and this is how the uh, characters operate it. And, Maybe Ars Magica kind of heads in that direction, and I don't want to say nothing like this exists, but we can certainly imagine that if you could start off your whole game with, this is how magic rules work, and once I've figured that out, they're consistent, there's a mathematical model, here's all the things you need to do to work magic, and from there I'm going to figure out what the setting is, what world would result from this magic that exists, and the outcome of the uh, whenever you catch a spell isn't related to game balance issues. So uh, I don't care that fireball, you know, costs not that much to do in this system. That just means that everybody will use fireball all the time. Right. And that means will that change there's going to be a lot of vitrified glass in the setting. Yes, exactly. And uh, possibly, uh, you know, someone will have used this set of principles to develop, you know, the easy counter to fireball, which is why fireball isn't used. Poss- you know, you may have that sort of logic, but, Everything that to do with magic is a simulation of something that doesn't exist. Yeah. But it requires that level of logic and appeals to the same sort of mind that likes a simulationist game. So you can envision a game where lots of other things work like that. Spaceships, we don't, spaceships don't exist, but uh, you can break out your old 50s, 60s uh, SF and your slide rules and come up with a you know, a way of for spaceships to work, even with semi imaginary things like faster than light, but otherwise they follow this set of mathematical rules and physics principles, some of which you've invented, but which behave consistently. And that too would be a simulation. Yeah. I mean, to an extent, that's what GURPS and Hero both do is that they, you know, have their very, very solid, very, very resistive set of rules that simulate basic physics and then they uh, say, if there were Green Lantern rings, how would that work? If there were right. starships, how would that work? And they try to they try to simulate as many non-existent things as they possibly can. And I feel like you know, Champions is the the old granddaddy of that is the notion of taking superhero comics, which are the very definition of arbitrary nonsense, and <laughs> nailing them down with, oh, nope, you can't lift that many dice, you can only lift this many dice, is, um, it, it's a beautiful uh, mathematical engineering challenge. I always found it a bit, slipped my gears as a player, that's no doubt because I was stupid and didn't pay attention, but that is still absolutely a core element of game design and has been almost from the beginning, you know, because Champions goes back, you know, almost as, about as far, if not even farther than, uh, James Bond does. So right. there you are. And that's because people started thinking overtly about simulation 
long before they started thinking overtly about emulation. Right. And that reflects the uh, sort of engineering and, and uh, science backgrounds of some of the early people who got involved. And also, of course, the history of wargaming, which, uh, you know, all of these little uh, games with their uh, cardboard chits were supposed to replicate the way that uh, all of these military pieces would interact in an actual uh, battle. So it makes total sense that that was an evolution in the history of role-playing, but now one where there's sort of, uh, you know, axes where you can select one or the other, and it's not a a revolutionary act to go, uh, you know, well, I don't care how martial arts works in real life. I care how it works in a uh, movie with action direction by Yang Wu-Ping. And uh, that's uh, quite different. Yeah. However, you could theoretically create a simulationist wuxia system where you uh, worked out in detail the imaginary physics of people who can uh, sort of quasi fly over rooftops uh, while they're uh, fighting, but the results would in no way resemble a- any of the movies that inspired that thought. Yeah, the uh, or they would be the perfectly legitimate flying rules and the perfectly legitimate martial arts rules, and the join would be something arbitrary like with this style you get flying <laughs> don't don't ask right right so i think we've now hit the, the first of the uh trade-offs and and some, sometimes uh it is a trade-off it's not just where you're going well i just want to be emulationist all the time but sometimes you have to go well i would really like to go for the emulationist answer to this but the players are just never going to be able to grok that that's never it won't make sense to them in this one instance i'm going to have to have fire hydrants work the way they do in real life and not in the movies because it will just cause untold confusion. And we all know that people, I don't want to get into everybody's complicated fire hydrant subsystem. So I guess uh, that means it's time for us to flee this hut and see what lurks on the other side. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
We're going to twiddle the dials and fiddle the data because it's time now for Fun with Science. And Ken, you have discovered that scientists have discovered a, uh, an amazing thing about fish. Uh, specifically, there's lots more of them in the ocean than uh, was previously uh, reckoned with. Uh, can you expand on that? Yes. Uh, this was just a, a happenstance on Twitter. Someone said, uh, physics is dumb. They say there's dark matter, and then they just expect us to believe it. Ornithologists don't go around saying there's dark birds. And someone else said, well, actually, there is dark fish. <laughs> and linked to this article in which uh, it was explained that the mesopelagic fish, which are the fish that live between 100 and 1,000 meters deep, well, there's a lot of them. And apparently in World War II, when people were out sonaring around in their submarine, they were puzzled by the fact that there was apparently a seafloor that showed up on their uh, sonar by day that was about 500 meters deep and then would be 100 meters deep at night. And they were like, that is weird that the seafloor moves. Well, it's it wasn't just the earth the breathing. I don't know why they were freaked out. But it wasn't. It was, in fact, a bunch of mesopelagic fish. Millions and billions of them, Mr. Rico. They uh, generally have a very high pressure sensitivity because they have to be able to go uh, back and forth between the upper reaches of the sea where there's uh, ample food and down to the bottom areas of the sea where they uh, live. And so with that uh, enhanced pressure sensitivity, they can avoid nets uh, because nets obviously create a, a pressure wave as they pull through the water. So they can always dive down and get below the nets or they can go around them. So very few of these fish are ever caught in nets. So uh, Professor Carlos Duarte of the University of Western Australia got on a Spanish ship called the Hesperides and they sailed around the world, dropping sonar buoys into the murk and uh, bouncing it off the fish. And Professor Duarte theorizes that these mesopelagic fish make up as much as 95% of the ocean biomass. So it is, it's dark fish. 95% of fish are fish we never see and uh, almost never catch because again, they, you know, if, if you did luck into one with a net and you pulled it up, it would explode because the pressure change would kill it once you get to the surface. Right. And that's why we think that many of these fish are super weird and blobby mm -hmm. because we know the, them from their exploded versions from having been hauled up suddenly and that's not what they look like at all in their natural habitat. Right. Now, another little footnote that we need to get here is that I know enough about branding, Ken, that I'm going to keep calling them dark fish. But this is actually the opposite of dark matter, because dark matter is our measurements tell us this matter exists, but we can't find it. Whereas these are mystery fish that we have actually found that we're surprised to be there. So in a way, they're sort of the opposite of dark fish. And now I'm going to go back to calling them dark fish. As well you should. Yes. So essentially, the, the, the headline here is that if you're just looking at biomass anyway, the ocean is a lot healthier than uh, people were worried about because there's all of these fish that are below our nets. And so the fish that we have overfished uh, and are running out of are all of the tasty, delicious fish that were foolish enough to get near us. Um, and there's all these other fish that we don't have access to and that they're going to be fine. Now, these fish, I'm sure, are still uh, worried about ocean acidification mm -hmm. and climate change may, may affect them somewhat because they do, as you pointed out, come up to the surface uh, periodically to, uh, to feed and to, uh, you know, hang out, chat, so forth. 
So I guess the question now that we're reaching is, this is interesting, but how do we put it in a gaming context? Or, I guess rather I should say, of the 95% of ocean biomass, what percentage of that is Cthulhu and Dagon? Right. And I think we cannot, at this time, I don't think as respectable uh, ichthyologists, we can speculate any closer than 12 to 18%. I would say it's irresponsible to try and narrow that number down. But yes, uh, I guess Cthulhu would technically be abyssopelagic, which is the two below mesopelagic, but Dagon and the, and the other interstitial creatures probably do get up to the mesopelagic uh, quite a bit because we know, for example, that every now and again, Dagon comes to the surface. So he must be banging around down there at the thousand meter uh, depth level. And of course, what does he eat? He, well, apparently he eats zillions of mesopelagic fish when he's not eating small towns on the coast of Chile somewhere, right? Right. And we also know that very large uh, sea creatures eat very small sea creatures. So uh, he very easily could be persisting on the mesopelagic equivalent of minnows. And the and the, the giant squids that everyone loves are mesopelagic creatures. They, they live in this stretch of the ocean. So... There, there is Cthulhu's, uh, eidolons or, uh, castings or avatars or whatever you want to call it. All the little krakens that are out there are, are jambling around in the mesopelagic. So we can definitely envision a scenario in which, uh, you are, uh, accompanying or are a fictional version of, uh, the good professor Carla Duarte doing this, uh, depth analysis and, uh, you see something really big and weird. And, uh, then what do you do about it? How else do we uh, incorporate this into a, a scenario? Well, one of the things you can do, I think that there is a, I don't know if it's underloved because it's, you know, maybe it's about right loved, but there used to be a genre of SF that was, we'll show them, we'll go live on the ocean bottom. And that it had sort of super submarines and it had uh, atomic domes on the bottom of the sea. Right. It was sort of the nerd trope Jacques Cousteau. Exactly. Era. The sort of a sea lab type universe. And I feel like you could present a sea lab. And of course there are, um, you don't have to have it be a boring old, we're just doing a bio research sea lab. This can be a sea lab to fight underwater aliens like the Namos or to fight the deep ones. This could be a Delta green project. Um, there's lots of rumors of, uh, government projects building underwater, uh, facilities. So you could have a sort of a, a watch station of Delta Green that is down in this, uh, mesopelagic void. And, uh, the fish, in fact, become kind of the, the weather pattern, right? These are the fish are clouded up near us. That's probably pretty good. They all scatter. That's bad. That means a monster is coming. And so you can use the, that whole, uh, environment as sort of your your lived environment, or you can in a maybe a a more James Bondified Fall of Delta Green campaign, you could be going down and having an underwater adventure in the heyday of the underwater adventure uh, of, of the fictional underwater adventure, and all of this can be uh, establishing that mesopelagic. Because what the great thing about the mesopelagic is at the bottom of it, it's pitch black. There's no light from above. That's literally the whole point of it is that it goes from you know, uh, a spot where there's like 2% light down to where there's no light. And so the, um, that I think adds a, a certain of, uh, a good vibe, uh, to, to gaming just in general. Uh, the specific other things that are down in that area, the old, uh, U.S. Navy's, uh, sound surveillance system, SOSIS, floated around in the mesopelagic because there's an area 
in um, the Mesopelagic where sound travels the slowest due to salinity and uh, because the temperature changes rapidly as you go farther down, obviously. So there's a, a, a sort of a sweet spot where you can send a low frequency sound a great long ways. And uh, that is where we put the SOSUS buoys to find Soviet submarines. So you can have, you know, monitoring the SOSUS buoys or some clump of, uh, of undersea fish of, of dark fish. They're providing chaff for your buoys. So maybe some uh, Soviet Aquaman has taught them to uh, mask the buoys for their evil sub uh, adventure or, Again, Dagon has done it because Dagon. Right. And because this is our segment on science, of course, we have to bring the esoteric into it. The Hesperides are the guardians in Greek mythology of the uh, of the magic apples. And like magic apples in many mythologies, you're not supposed to get a hold of them. So what is the forbidden fruit uh, that is being uh, discovered or concealed by this uh, expedition? And I would uh, suggest that perhaps these fish are not just mesopelagic but pragmapelagic that they span different realities and dimensions and that uh, various different alternate dimensions are connected uh, by the world's oceans and that the fish uh, travel in between them that uh, reality uh, means nothing to uh, to fish there are these uh, fissures in the deep trenches that allow you to, to travel uh, from one dimension into another humans of course have not uh, normally been able to uh, get down that far because it'll be crushed, but you may have the first expedition to go down and it's not a hollow earth story so much as a into a submersible down into a trench, follow the uh, pragmapelagic fish, which you can detect their specific resonance. Not all the species do it. You follow the pragmapelagic uh, fish and uh, down into the particular uh, trench. And then suddenly you're in the deep ocean of another reality. And then when you surface, guess what? There's uh, zeppelins in the air, and uh, there's uh, perhaps a red sky and uh, a whole other uh, reality that uh, you may want to hang around in for a while, or you may decide is terrifying and want to get out of. Yeah, the notion that um, there's lots of different passages between alternate Earths, and they just all happen down at the bottom of the mesopelagic, where sunlight can't mess them up. And that's where, you know, the uh, the gill men from the Black Lagoon ecology can come into our world or the deep ones or the Atlanteans or whoever or, you know, an evil Nazi super sub from the world where they won the war uh, can ping into our world. All manner of fun. And that can provide a interesting control parameter on your alternate Earths game is your. You know, you're, you're not able to just walk into a phone booth and come out in alternate Berlin. You've got to get into a, a experimental submarine, drop below a thousand meters, and then figure out how to go through the channel and come up. So it's almost like uh, navigation to an alternate world. And of course, in many of those alternate worlds, there's magic and all manner of horrible things. Right. And the myths of Atlantis and, and Boo and Lemuria are actually garbled uh, descriptions of other civilizations that were able to uh, breach the uh, connections between realities and come briefly and invade our world. And maybe they found it horrible because the sky wasn't red and there were no Zeppelins and people had coffee where they preferred tea, all those other uh, things. Uh, well, I guess uh, speaking of shifting between realities, I think it's about time that we shifted through segments and see what uh, awaits us on the other side of this very beautiful hand tool commercial.
The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep us solving Ichthyo mysteries by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Toonspew! Tony Kemp! Fred Kish! Jeremy French! And John Kingdon! The clanking of chains! The fluttering of ghosts! The chittering of bats! Well, all of those things surround, indeed envelop, the horror hut. And today... Beloved Patreon backer Toonspew uh, has a question for the Horror Hut and an opinion and so many things. So let's uh, let's invite Toonspew in where we keep the knives and the uh, disturbing dr- dental drill and uh, get right to it. <laughs> uh, Toonspew says there is something I find delightful in applying mundane human concepts such as the institution of marriage onto vast unknowable alien intelligence. So my question is. How would you and Ken interpret this or other examples of cosmic matrimony in the context of Delta Green, King and Yellow, or other Lovecraft-adjacent games? Specifically, does the King in Yellow have a queen? And I feel like our sort of default answer, Robin, is that he's at least got daughters, right? Yeah. That the assumption yes. is that that's what Casilda and Camilla are, is that those are his daughters. Right. So one assumes there must have at least been a a princess involved in that at some point, right? Yeah. Now, what the politics are in Carcosa is not clear. Chambers, uh, W. Chambers, of course, just sort of hints very lightly at what this world of Carcosa might be, and and we get only tiny little fragments onto which even to say that Camilla and Casilda are his daughters is a projection, but you got to go with something. And although the Yellow King role-playing game offers many different explanations of what's going on. It does go, yeah, yeah, if there's a king and he's got two daughters. So they certainly presumably had a mom. Um, I suppose uh, you could say that he grew them in a vat or from trees or something. But uh, I think it's more interesting to have a character than to not have a character. So we can suggest that at one point anyway, uh, he had a queen or a consort or, or a concubine. And since we're deciding what's interesting, it seems the most fun to have her be a queen. And we can then explain why she doesn't seem to be in the picture. And I think it is more interesting once again to go, well, if there just is a queen and she's there all the time and she's just not mentioned in that fragment of the play, that doesn't give us as big a plot hook as the queen used to exist and has either been exiled and wants to come back, wants to reassert her command as a rival to the power of the king, or the queen is dead, and therefore that uh, throne next to the king's throne is vacant, and somebody might want to uh, get up onto it. And so both of those things give us plot elements that you could use in any sequence of the Yellow King role-playing game, where either 
you meet this strange entity with uh, this sort of skeletal lady who seems peculiar, seems like she's not from France or America, <laughs> and she wants something from you, and it turns out over time what she's trying to do is... Careful, chaps, uh, she's not from France. She's not from France, that she's trying to get back onto the throne, and since the king, presumably in this scenario, exiled her, she wants vengeance against the king. And if the king is trying to come and get you, perhaps because you read the play, that gives you the sort of ally who will absolutely help you out all the time, and you never have to worry about her having any sort of agenda of her own that will lead her to ever betray you. So I think that's kind of an exciting way to bring an element of hope and joy absolutely. into uh, the Ella King role-playing game. Right. I mean, if one mysterious cosmic monarch that uh, alters the world merely by existing is is bad... Add a second one. How's that not good? The um, uh, canonical, and I hesitate to use that word in this context, wife of Cthulhu is Ivya, who was made up by Lynn Carter and who gave birth to Cthulhu's daughter, his secret daughter, Cthulhu. And that is Cthulhu <laughs> comes to us courtesy of Brian Lumley. So if you're looking for fun facts about Cthulhu's family life, including his good twin, Cathanid, well, Brian Lumley is your boy. Right. And, and that's interesting because it's like weird octopoid entities having a family structure is just too weird and mundane and is immediately stupid. Right. Whereas, oh, yeah, these sort of humanoid aliens who have a royal family, that makes total sense that there would just be another one that we haven't uh, heard of yet. Well, I mean, the, I mean the, the, thing, the thing about it is, is because the assumption via Chambers is that the king in yellow at the very least, puts on a human guise, right? That he is recognizable as a king. He wears a yellow cloak. Camilda and Casilla are they're they're coded human in this, and the, their responses are human. They even respond they have to be with characters that can be portrayed right? on stage. The plays right. are performed. They respond with with human fear to the king. So accustomed by chambers, and again, as you point out, in very very few lines of writing, to think of them as basically gigantic human forms, uh, sort of like Zeus, uh, if you will. Um, maybe a little more cosmic, maybe uh, considerably worse than Zeus, but still knowable in that way, even though unknowability is sort of their watchwork. Whereas Cthulhu is a cosmic principle, for one thing, and second of all, is a squid alien. And <laughs> even if he was just a squid alien from the planet Zoth, the odds of squid aliens having a nuclear family is, I'm going to say, not good, right? I mean, how do you, who do you even performs the ceremony at right. the wedding? Like Azazoth? He just doesn't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Nerothotep does it as a joke. It's like getting married by Elvis in on Earth. It's big, getting married by Nerothotep is the big thing on Zoth. So taking the human and expanding it is terrifying, mostly because people are terrible. Taking the cosmic and anthropomorphizing it is generally kind of tame. And because that's literally the reason you anthropomorphize. You were scared of thunder, but now he's Thor. He's your buddy Thor. He drinks and he has a hammer and he's cool. It's not so bad. And, and I feel like we're, we're maybe getting, this is less the horror hut than sort of the, the, the you know, goofball digression, the, hut. the ontology <laughs> hut or something. But, but the notion of, um, effective horror. For a family to be an effective horror tone, the family has to have begun or be recognizably human. So the Waitleys right. are a Lovecraftian family. Mm -hmm. 
because there, there's some divine or uh, evil divine bloodline going on there, but there's also, you know, they're still human shaped, some of them kind of. Right, yeah. And so to get back to the idea of uh, generating plot ideas, another, I, I think, ex- interesting long running plot that you can have is a player character uh, in a scenario where the queen is dead is, is recognizable to the king or one of the princesses as oh, she looks a lot like mom. Maybe she's the new incarnation and uh, they may uh, attempt to inveigle her to Carcosa to, you know, put on the mask and uh, become one of them. And so your goal as the player characters is to make sure that the player character doesn't uh, suffer that horrible take you out of play, create a new character shape uh, sort of fate. And that could be the whole spine of an of an episode or sort of an entire uh, series even. And of course, you know, your typical player is not going to take very long going, well, what if I did? What if I did marry the king and sit on the throne? What amazing powers could I uh, have then? Because, you know, there's there's nothing like dangling the temptation of power before a horror character to get things rolling. Yeah, um, you could do the same thing. Obviously, many, many characters in Lovecraft have got some kind of monstrous or uh, evil divine, as you put it, taint in their blood. So you could have a character who turns out to be grandson of Yogg-Sothoth and doesn't know it. And through a similar gross hilltop ceremony, you know, they, they came about, it was their, you know, other brother that inherited all the Yogg-Sothothness and went off and got murdered by Miskatonic guys. And they've just sort of wandered through the world and have weird visions and crazy synesthetic episodes. And they're not sure why they're never quite able to parse reality. And the answer is, is they're only partly in reality. And the places where Lovecraft is already inculcated the godly or the monstrous into human shape or into human blood. I I think that's uh, ample areas to play with. And we do have, I forgot, we have the one great old one who does like to take on human form and mess with people. Of course, we mentioned him previously, Nyarlathotep. And what we know about Nyarlathotep, at one point, he became a pharaoh and ruled in ancient Egypt. So if he's a pharaoh... That implies that he's got a queen somewhere, right? So maybe we've got, maybe it's Natokris, who's another mythical pharaonic queen from Lovecraft. Maybe she was the uh, queen of Nyarlathotep. Maybe there's some other pharaonic queen that we can make up. Uh, maybe she's um, uh, Anxunamun from the mummy. Maybe she's some other mummy lady that you've, uh, she could be Tira, the uh, goddess of the seven stars from Bram Stoker's not quite as good novel. You can imagine a Mrs. Nyarlathotep, in some sense, who is showing up because the stars are right. And now it is, you know, she comes uh, much like the woman clothed with the sun comes before the beast in Revelation. And in this case, the woman clothed with the sun is also terrible. She's not the church. She's something awful. And in this case, she would be the the revived Lady Nerathotep and trouble uh, begins to ensue and maybe she has to rebuild her own power because she knows that when her husband comes back in his full form, she will be blown away unless she takes precautions. So she's building a kind of a dark readout. And again, as you say, nothing can be uh, more safe and helpful than to just trust yourself to Nerathotep's ex-wife for uh, protection uh, against yeah, she's the coming not in times. No. Sure. And uh, nor does she have any use for humans with a slightly higher than average knowledge of magic. 
Uh, she wouldn't need those for raw material of any kind. Yeah. She doesn't need people hanging around with her who are full of useful blood. Right. No. And uh, any cult, uh, whether it's in a Trail of Cthulhu or Fall of Delta Green or in any era of Cthulhu play, any cult could be a recruiting center for the perfect bride of Cthulhu because it isn't weird if it's, you know, if Cthulhu marries a, a human, that's not weird at all. That's just, it's just disgusting. <laughs> yes. Or, you know, even the groom of uh, Shubnagurath. Right, yeah. And so you could certainly uh, have that be either the uh, focus of a scenario where you are trying to rescue the person who's been singled out as having all of these qualities. Maybe she's she or he has left the cult, or maybe even the cultists have identified them and they're highly resistant to joining a cult. they got stuff to do. They're, <laughs> they're not interested in that. And then the cult uh, pursues them. That's, uh, I think, a, a pulp plot line ripped from the very origins of the pulps. And uh, once we're getting back to the very origins of the pulps, it's time for us to de-originate this segment and originate another segment, which I think is on the other side of this commercial. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing oh it's time once more to enter a shadowy hut the most ill-defined of huts the one where the the paranormal meets the uh, crackpot. We're not sure what hut it is until we look over in the corner, and there, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien sharing a kombucha. They're once more, they're gossiping about the uh, reptile aliens. We look out the window, there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor. And this time around, what he's screaming is, Ken, tell us about chupas. Because, says the alien big cat, these are both vampires and UFOs. How come it took you 466 episodes? To get to the chupas, or as they're sometimes known, the chupa chupas. Well, alien big cat, if you would come in from the moors once in a while, maybe you'd hear about the chupas earlier. Yeah, the, and also the cat does not subscribe to the Patreon. Yeah, right. So yeah, he's got no no privilege status, not like yes, beloved you lack standing backers. alien big cat. Yeah, you're out of place in so many ways. Uh, yeah, the chupas basically uh, they come from Brazil, or in that that's where they've been sighted. I mean, they might come from any number of places, but they. The sightings are an evil alien dimension would be my guess, but I'm getting ahead of myself or a secret Andean base built by Marconi in the thirties. Anyhow, the, uh, sightings 
mostly occur in northern Brazil, in the state of Pará, and in sort of the area around there. Uh, there's some sightings in the Venezuelan Amazon, but it's that sort of stretch of the northern Amazon delta. The sightings began in the late 1960s. Uh, we have a sighting as uh, early that I found as 1969. Uh, there have been probably other sightings before that, you know, one broke out and became the first. And then there was a big flap of them in uh, 1977 around the town of Colares. And that one was so big and so crazy. And so many people reported these chupas or chupa chupas that the Brazilian air force either launched or dedicated. And I'm not exactly sure something called operation saucer. Now Brazil had a UFO hunting working group in their air force from before 1977. And I don't know if Operation Saucer is the same as Operation Bolide, which is the name that I've found their working group as. So with that said, Operation Saucer is four months of military uh, responses uh, to the sightings in Calares under a guy named Captain Oirange Bolivar Suarez Nogaira de Holanda Lima. And Captain de Holanda then, you know, was taken off the case because the Air Force flying around getting nothing accomplished was embarrassing everyone. They prepared a big 2,000-page report, which, of course, wound up in the same place as all UFO reports. Now, I guess before we go back into the investigation of Chupas, we need to describe them. Yeah, right. So they are sort of weird light emanations, and they're uh, they're sort of micro-UFOs. They're like little balls of light often, and they are attracted by... Uh, People out, uh, particularly if they're by the the shore, uh, and particularly if they have a little light source. If you uh, people got rid of their luminous watches, supposedly due to chupa attacks. Also, they were attracted by people uh, lighting cigarettes, the flame from lighters, and the they would uh, come at you. And uh, unlike a lot of other uh, luminous objects that people cite can in UFO lore, they would bite you and suck your blood. Yes. They would sh- either, they would shoot a beam out in some cases, or they would just fly up and glow on you depending. And uh, you would have a uh, sensation on your chest. Usually that felt somewhat like a cigarette burn or a very powerful electric shock. People would be paralyzed by fear or by paralysis ray, I guess. The chupa, usually red light, sometimes reddish white. The beam then, uh, according to medical surveys taken after the attacks, uh, people are, are, their hemoglobin count is low. They've got uh, severe anemia. They wind up with these weird double puncture marks on their body where the, the beam hit them. And uh, sometimes the chupa is a green light and turns red, uh, indicating it's drinking your blood. Uh, and sometimes it just shines on you and you feel terrible. You, uh, you throw up or your hair falls out or you get a weird plague looking buboes on you. You might get burns. Uh, one case, uh, said that they got leprosy from the chupas, which seems extreme, but there we are. So they basically, uh, their life bane blobs, right? They, they mess with your, uh, life force. And in many cases, they directly drink your blood. Right. And the claim, at any rate, is that there was physical evidence on the bodies yeah, of the people who right. had cited them that was measurable by actual doctors. You can see pictures of, of people's chests, even now, with uh, chupa burns, if you uh, Google it. Now, am I going to say that's not the bite of something you get falling into the Amazon while drunk? I am not going to say that. Am I going to say that's 
a burn mark you get from a Brazilian smuggler gang that is trying to tell you to keep quiet about the, seeing the smugglers. Also, I'm not going to say that, but whatever it was, it basically, uh, like I say, it peaked in that 1977-78 period. Shupa sightings. And, and you're a pretty good drug smuggler if you can lower somebody's hemoglobin level. That's that's a trick. It is. You'd, you'd have to have um, snuck in and caused an entire Brazilian village to have poor nutrition, which no one has ever done. So the um, the sightings basically uh, taper off around 1982. There are not that many current Chupa sightings. Every now and again, you'll see one. But that seems to have been the, the moment of the Chupas, that even the big cities like Belém had Chupa victims uh, in uh, the city. So it's not just out in the boonies, necessarily. You get urban Chupa attacks. So it's it, it was sort of a big deal there in northern Brazil for a good long time. But the Brazilian Air Force could do nothing. And uh, apparently, they got full of blood and went away. So this is a, a fun example of sort of a, a the ultra terrestrials are mixing up their game a bit here they're not following the, the usual pattern and they're uh, combining the uh, uh vampire tropes with ufo tropes and uh of course this makes us think that maybe they read uh, about the star vampires mm-hmm. <laughs> in lovecraft it uh, comes right out of that and so so a little while after the peak of the flap our uh, frequent mentionee on the show Jacques Vallée uh, went down to Brazil and uh, met a couple of different people who claimed to be investigating them uh, for the military and got the usual weird runaround with intelligence or quasi-intelligence people. And uh, there seemed to be something happening. Is there sort of a disinformation aspect of this? What's going on? And uh, as as always in these stories, there wind up being uh, more uh, questions and answers. So uh, the thing that uh, we can begin to answer is again, how to fit them into a scenario. And it seems pretty straightforward to uh, whether you're having the uh, investigators go to Brazil or this is just something that's happening in a new place now is to start to have a rash of these uh, weird attacks. People are out by the water. Uh, the chupas are associated with water. Uh, they're, uh, and now, of course, it's weird to me that there's not more chupa problems because now people have smartphones. And what illuminates a shoreline uh, better than uh, a lighter or a, a luminous watch dial a smartphone. So I think it's about time. We're overdue for, for a chupa yeah, attack. A chupa resurgence, mm-hmm. uh, as it were. And you can investigate the source of, of the chupa attacks and you can, the mystery can be solved by finding their base or discovering the uh, radio frequency that you need to uh, use to send them back to their home planet and or dimension. Or they could be the, uh, the minions of uh, some other more uh, accessible, intelligent uh, uh, antagonist, or, of course, a cover story to cover up some other mundane or differently esoteric or paranormal than uh, just the uh, uh, chupas uh, sucking the blood of poor, innocent shoreline passersby. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a Haitian version of the corpse candle or will-o'-the-wisp called the faux follette that is also a red flickering light and like a will of the wisp, you, you follow it into the hills and then it drinks your blood. So, uh, these chupas may be, uh, weaponized faux follets or they, or they may be a, you know, a different species of them, or they may be the faux follets from an alien dimension or an alien planet that are here, or faux follets may be the sort of, you know, uh, ground state of them and, uh, you can charge them up with, as you suggest, some sort of uh, radio broadcast or other 
change to the geomagnetic frequencies around. Obviously, as you say, the simplest thing is if you're running a Moondust Men game, you investigate something in Brazil and it's Chupas. Uh, the Chupas also, I think, make a great uh, sidekick or possibility for alien vampires in a Knights Black Agents game. Um, if you've got vampires that crashed in a flying saucer or a meteor somewhere, these Chupas are their, either their weapons, if they're uh, robot uh, Chupas, or they're some sort of astral projection uh, that they're using with their psychic powers. Yeah. In- instead of turning into bats, they turn into chupas. Yeah, and then they fly around. Yeah, they can even transform into chupas as opposed to have them as their as their sort of assistants or, or guards. Or, or their screen memories of vampire attacks that you uh, were actually, you know, attacked by a regular old Amazonian vampire, but you remember just the chupa part, just the way that in some uh, UFO abduction lore, you remember meeting owls. Right. And you have to get hypnotized by somebody to convince yourself that you're in fact kidnapped and probed. Right. So you, so you remember owls and then you're hypnotized and it's like, Oh no, it was UFOs and they drank my blood. And then you're hypnotized <laughs> yeah. again. And it's like, Oh no, 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 no. This time for sure. It was vampires. Yeah. Uh, can I go back to the owls? Can I go back to the owls? That was nice. <laughs> again. I like that. Owls are fun. And then obviously anything that can drink blood out of you can put stuff into you. So the chupas I would say could probably implant uh, chips just like regular UFOs, or they could exchange fluids like a mosquito does. When the mosquito drinks your blood, you get mosquito spit, and that's what makes your arm itch. So maybe you've got chupa spit in you, and the chupas can, their bosses can dominate you, or they can see through your eyes, or something else can happen. The chupa victims, it's not just, oh, I got away and my hemoglobin's a little low. I guess it wasn't as bad as it seemed. No, it is as bad as you seemed. It's just the chupa had a reason for you to wander around. Right. Well, I've just noticed, Ken, that I'm standing by a shoreline, and I've got my iPad with a script on it, and it's luminous, and I see some strange green lights coming my way. So I think it's time for us to quickly uh, wrap up uh, this episode, but I'm sure the Chupa encounter will be mild, and I'll be back next week with you for another episode uh, much like this one. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop Chupas from burning up this podcast by throwing in with such illustrious backers as... Yadge from Edinburgh. Darren Hennessy. Matt Farr. Oli Toivonen. And Thomas Vallejos. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Prepare for winter with our latest design, Cthulhu Canada. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>